Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1428, <laughs> entitled The Way of Walter. Nice. <laughs> Our podcast title is The Pod of Us. We have so much room on the show today, it's a good <laughs> thing we're fun guys. <laughs> Look, we've got a bit of a part two wrap-up for Better Call Saul, the series today, mm-hmm. and also Avatar, The Way of Walter. <laughs> if you've seen that meme out there, it's actually there's a Walter White done up as a, a blue Navi. Oh. So obviously really good at that cooking the blue, and it has side effects, though, so <laughs> maybe not so good. Speaking of altered human beings, The Last of Us, the latest post-apocalyptic zombie holocaust show. Wow. (laughs) So much promise on Zero-G, and probably we're going to deliver so poorly the one on that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. I was still to watch the sixth and final season of Better Call Saul. Mm -hmm. Where was I watching it on? Streaming on Stan. Mm -hmm. And I have now done so. Ah, and my question was before I watched it was, will it deliver? Because while it is a prequel to Breaking Bad, of course, mm. not only is it that, but it also, because it's coming out after Breaking Bad, yeah. it's really a chance to wrap that up too. Yeah, it's the end of the Gilligan CU, the Vince Gilligan universe of shows <laughs> and movies and everything. And I think, yeah, did they nail it? I'm curious too. The Albuquerque verse. Exactly. <laughs> yes, is the short answer, so let's move on from that. <laughs> Good. Dusts off hands. <laughs> Look, it wraps up the past mm-hmm. and the post-Breaking Bad future, and it's got key cameos from Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, <gasps> Ooh. and it delivers some closure on the arcs of some other characters too oh. from Breaking Bad. And it's really tricky to do that in a prequel. Yeah. Except for the fact that this is a bit of a, and I use the term deliberately, time machine of a series. And, in fact, H.G. Wells' seminal novel Mm -hmm. plays a big part in Better Call Saul. It's often seen sitting on a desk or a bookshelf or, you know, and it's something that Saul Goodman refers to quite often. In fact, he actually does that whole, what would you do if you had a time machine Mm. question? And at one stage, Walter White blows up at him and says, look, if this is about regrets, then let's just do it. Let's not go through any of this impossible time machine because, you know, Mr. Science. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and that's what it is. There are three different time slices of Bob Odenkirk's now iconic character. Mm. There's James McGill, that's his actual name, Saul Goodman, Mm. the pun upon Saul Goodman, and Gene Takovic. And these characters are each running through the whole series in three different time eras. It all makes sense the way they've done it. It's all very deftly juggled. Mm -hmm. And, of course, 
Jimmy, Saul, Gene, they're all unreliable narrators yeah. up until the final moments, well, you know, the final episode of this sixth season where it all wraps up. And they've got this great device of the future segments, Breaking Bad's future, are in black and white. Ah, uh, okay, good. Easy differentiation. <laughs> Yeah, but at first it sort of fooled me a bit because usually black and white is sort of older yeah. stuff. Yeah, were you like yeah, banging so. the TV? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, I'm trying to figure <laughs> it all out. Now, Gene Takovic is an on the lamb cover identity, as we've discussed previously, mm-hmm. for um, Saul Goodman, Jimmy, after the events of Breaking Bad. He's on the run from the feds and also probably scared of the cartel sort of backlash, yeah. even if most of those have been wiped yeah. out. Yeah, well, he was right in the muck, wasn't he? He was indeed way more implicated in it than you would think that. No, actually, come to think of it, it is exactly as it deep was, as yeah. you expect <laughs> him to be. They let us know what the timeline of the Gene Takovic thing is, mm-hmm. the post Breaking Bad. It's not very many months after the death of Walter White. Right. At one stage, Walter says, in you know, in a flashback, you were always like this mm. to Saul. He is, he's got this constant, I am a a grifter, a man Mm. on the make and a con man and all that sort of stuff. And he does uh, have a little bit of good in him. In fact, he's a a good bad man and a bad good man at the same time. Yeah, that's what makes him so watchable and interesting. It is because it just wouldn't work any other way. But he is a supreme sleazebag, really. (laughs) You kind of get the viewpoint they're giving us of him yeah. throughout this whole show. Yeah. But at the same time, you realise it's a very twisted view yeah. as he drags other people down into the morass with him. Yeah. And we get the closure arc of him and Kim Wexler, partner in crime and life and in the law as well. Mm-hmm. Very complicated there. And, you know, these two were made for each other, yeah. really. But Kim does realise that together they are awful. Yeah. They do terrible things to people around them, and Mm. that all comes to a head in the final season as well. You know, it's almost like there's a code in this, the old Hayes Code, where you must show a criminal having retribution and justice levelled upon him at the end Mm. of the story. But is it, you know? (laughs) There are always possibilities in the weird world of Saul Goodman. I just love this show to pieces. It is great. It is a worthy prequel, one of the best prequels I've ever seen for a television show or a movie series or anything like that. Wow. Uh, Vince Gillian knows his stuff. All the actors know their stuff. And it's funny, when Walter White and Jesse Pinkman do show up, there's very much a sense of, but this is actually Saul Goodman's show. Yeah. Yeah, and that's nice. You know, that's respect. Yeah. You've got to show respect. <laughs> they play it a bit comically too in, in many ways. It's very funny. Pork Pie Hat Off to Better Call Saul, one of the great television shows, and I really didn't think that they would be able to pull it off yep. to make it as good as Breaking Bad. And although it doesn't have the science aspect, as I've discussed, the legal procedural aspect is more than enough for me. The magnificent bastardry of Saul, Jimmy, Jean's grifting ways, it's incredible. Yeah. You just watch it and you think, you are a wicked, wicked man. What a piece of work, but why can't what I stop watching? Yeah, yeah. I think I've been conned into watching this show. So, yeah, check it out. Better Call Saul. Great character studies, great procedural, 
more of some of characters we've that have become beloved and below. Yes, iconic. By, mm. Yeah, and in such a weird, twisted way. Mm. It is a perfect show for Zero G, really. It, have a look there at. you go. Yeah, we're taking on the weird and, and wonderful and amoral. Yeah. <sighs> okay, so moving on to Avatar The Way of Walter in a moment, but I cannot resist playing the Better Call Saul ad once again. Junior Brown here, and it's Better Call Saul from a single, putting out the signal of the grifter, the con man. You know, he's like Donald Trump in this past season, in season six. He's got a mansion with a gold toilet. All that. I'm sure they've been playing all of that sort of comparison. Yeah. But, you know, what a classier ride he is. <laughs> <laughs> Pedicle Saul. Get the business card out. Give him a call. Uh, hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural, and you're listening to 3 Triple R FM Zero G, you idiots. Oh, <laughs> you better call Saul and use a burner phone too, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Junior Brown there from the television show. You know, that's the way I like to think of Saul Goodman as a commercial. Yeah. With one of those crazy uh, inflatable figures uh, waving their arms. Around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he had a, an inflatable statue of liberty on his office roof. Of course he did. Course he did. <laughs> oh, and, you know, I found this out about the show, about Better Call Saul. They didn't tell. Bob and Rhea, who play uh, Saul and Kim, that they were going to kill the Howard Hamlin character off in the room with them. Oh, so, gosh. You know, the actor, he knew, but they didn't know. Genuine so reactions. A, a Ridley Scott. <laughs> a Ridley, yes, an alien. <laughs> yeah, a chestburster thing, yeah. And i, I got to say, uh, Howard Hamlin even though he was an ass, he did not deserve the fate that was dealt him in the series. Moving on from that to yeah. Avatar, The Way of Water, we had a look at that last week. We covered a lot of the stuff in there. I think it's a good science fiction movie in that they do explore the Avatar technology, yeah. which is, after all, the core of the the franchise. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've got to do when you've got a science fiction show if you've got some whiz bang new technology like that and it's the center of the show you do have to look at it and see how it works let us know what it's about how it affects the world that kind of thing yeah yeah we'd already covered all the fact that it's a family story with jake sully Mm -hmm. now a full navi chieftain Mm -hmm. fleeing off to the seaside yep because the humans have come back in force to now do some really dastardly Mm. uh, mining of resources, organic resources this time, not just the unobtainium. You know, I told you last week, it's whaling that they're engaged Mm -hmm. in. I mean, as if they couldn't make us worse. Yeah, I know. We did a great deal of chatter about the white saviour complex or the the strong right arm of the earth man in science fiction terms. And I sort of worked around that and I thought, okay, given the massive disparity between the Na'vi and the humans with their starships and cloning and and mechas and all that sort of stuff. I actually think that the Navi did need to have an inside human. This was also about infiltration Mm. of the technology they were using. That's very interesting because this movie goes all the other way and it actually makes 
You're ashamed to be a human being. Yeah, well, it's done its job then. We are the monsters, right? Totally right. And often in James Cameron movies like Aliens and so on, the company, you know, and humans and corporate greed, it's often, it is a common trope in science fiction. Skynet and so forth. Yeah, they do play it well here. It was a very family movie, the second in the series. Family gets everybody into trouble frequently, just like in real life. (laughs) (laughs) But there's another family grouping in, in the villains of the piece. Oh. Oh. Uh, We had uh, Colonel Kurt. um, Sorry, Colonel uh, (laughs) Quaritch. Uh, Now, he is still being played by Stephen Lang. And, look, it's no real big reveal to let you know that it's cloning. Mm. They can do all this. But the thing is that they bring him back as a Navi. Okay. You know, so here's the thing. He actually goes on a journey in this that mirrors Jake's journey. Mm. Well, okay, we're going to reprise this in a way. But, of course, you know, he is who he is, so it's not going to be quite the same journey. Yeah, yeah. But you'd be surprised. And I was. And I do wonder how far he's going to travel along that line. Yeah. Is he going to go fully native Navi, as it were, or what? It's a very interesting change that they've done to him. And Stephen Lang is great at this role, and he's always played this kind of role in in movies, generals and and military types and stuff. He just knows what he's doing there. It's it's almost like he was trained for it. (laughs) (laughs) We've also got um, Brendan Cowell from Australia. He's in this. Yes, he is. He plays, and how how is this for a name, Captain Mick Scoresby. And he is in charge of one of the whaling ships. Okay. Right. It's his baddie. And he is, yeah, he's literally a Captain Ahab type. Mm. And they don't back away from his accent. Oh. Oh, well. He is completely Australian. Australian represent, I mean, as a villain. But sure, we're in there. Yeah. We've seen him before on uh, Game of Thrones. Was he in Game of Thrones? Yes, he played Harag, an ironborn sea captain. Oh, gosh. So he loves to be out on the water as a questionable seafarer. And in the tradition of conflicted scientists mm. who are advising the humans mm-hmm. is Jermaine Clement. What a treat. He's a biologist. You know, I don't think he's very, very happy at all working mm. for the, the, the rapacious company. Jermaine wouldn't but, be. He would be conflicted. Before you can say flight of the Concords, mm. he's in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, the, you know, we've, we've gone through all the actors, all of that sort of stuff. In summation, I can say, look, the 3D is great. It works really well in the aquatic environment. It delivers all the spectacle that you could want from this sort of big budget, you know, tentpole movie, tentpole of a franchise we didn't know that we needed. It also does develop the themes of the sentient life forms upon Pandora. It's not just Sonata. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And lays some more intricate clues about the Gestalt group intelligence that the entire biome of the Pandora planet forms. Right. Uh, so, you know, there are some trails laid out into this. Right. And, of course, we know that the character of, of Dr. Grace, mm-hmm. she's very much fretted throughout this, even though she's dead because yeah. Sigourney Weaver is playing the younger Sully squad member, of one course. of the characters in that. <laughs> so, you know, it's actually far more complex than the first one in a lot of ways. Yeah. It still delivers some of the same old core. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't mind that in this case because I'm watching this scene thinking, this is massive, epic cinema. Yep. It moved me, beauty of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. 
the soundtrack is great. The acting is where it should be. Mm. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying they're all going to any of the Navi are going to win Academy Awards, <laughs> and that's but, and that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Curse you, Academy Award. <laughs> so yeah, I recommend it. It's a worthy sequel to the first movie. The sequel underlined. There's so much showcasing of James Cameron's absolute passion for the ocean. Yep. And, it was a worthwhile film for me to go and see at the cinema because yeah. it needed to be seen on that big screen. Yeah. Well, it's the return, or well, not the return, but it's that large-scale cinema experience, the blockbuster, you know, it's the scale, yeah. the scope of it, and I think mm-hmm. it's meant to be enjoyed and in some ways we, we forget that when we want something to be critical of or immersed in in this particular intellectual way. Well, yeah, you literally get immersed in this yeah, one. It's all yeah, you're submerged. <laughs> yeah. Somebody asked Cameron, you know, if the, uh, the third and fourth movie were a sure thing. Mm. Any other littoral pun you want to use about the interface between the ocean and the sea? And he just said, well, you know, if Avatar 2 doesn't make enough money, there won't be a third and a fourth movie. Right. And looking at the box office, they are in no strife yeah, at all. They'll be, they'll be making the sequels. These films have attracted some critical acclaim and they've also caused a bit of social argy-bargy out there. You know, I mean, I can remember some of the conservative so-called critics frothing at the mouth about, oh, look at them, you know, once again sticking the, the boot into into corporate multinationals or multistellars or whatever you want to call them. They're going to hate this movie. <laughs> but hate is their theme. Mm. You know, so that's just going to happen anyway. I think we will play a track here to go out on. And um, this track is called The Navi Attack, and it's by Simon Franklin, who is not James Horner, obviously, mm-hmm. um, that great composer having passed. This is uh, from Avatar. The Way of Water soundtrack album. So, you know, just put yourself into the position of you are either – this is like like a choose-your-own-adventure story. You are either one of the the plucky, beautiful Navi creatures and the uh, or one of the actual uh, animals on the planet mm-hmm. who are also part of the, that's that particular team, Team Blue, or you're one of the nasty humans. I don't know. Which would you choose? <laughs> okay, Navi attack. In the marmalade forest, forest. between the make-believe tree. G'day, I'm Brent McKenzie. I played an elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Elendil the King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Walter White's last cook. (laughs) (laughs) Navi attack from Avatar, the way of... Walter, and that was by Simon Franklin, who is the composer for that. There's also some echoes of James Horner's sort of themes from the original soundtrack, too, in Avatar 2. Now, Avatar 2 is the humans are abandoning Earth. I guess that's a post-apocalyptic movie, too. Yes. (laughs) So let's shift our focus onto TV. Last week, we did cover a little bit of The Last of Us video game, 
which is a very well-renowned and quite beloved video game. And that was in preparation of today's show where we're going to talk a little bit about the TV adaptation. It's an HBO show, so here in Australia you can watch it on Binge or Foxtel. So The Last of Us. It was created for TV by Craig Mazin. So Mazin proved his chops with HBO's Chernobyl. You liked that one, didn't you, Rob? Yeah, strong series. And he's also got a bit of a start in comedy. So he did those scary movie movies and he also worked on the Hangover trilogy. So the TV show has also been created along with the likes of Neil Druckmann, who is the creator of the video game. And so I think having the involvement of the game creator is a really good sign. Now, the TV show is being released weekly, every Monday at 1pm, actually, so it's a bit of our competition. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. So, I think it's being released at the same time, sort of in North America and here. So, we do technically, we have four episodes released and one just released as we speak. So, we don't want to spoil too much, so we're just going to talk a little bit about our preliminary thoughts on the first couple of episodes. The first season of the TV show will cover the events of the first game and also the downloadable extra content called Left Behind. And then the second season will cover the second game. So the second game was released a couple of years ago and the show actually has already been renewed for a second season. So that's a good sign. It's already impressed enough to get that tick from the big wigs. What I thought was quite interesting actually was it was originally being developed as a movie. So this has kind of been stuck in development hell for a while. They were trying to develop it as a movie. They had different people in line. They were interested in like Maisie Williams and things for the character of Ellie. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, we yeah. didn't go too far with what we got eventually for our Ellie as an actress who was also in Game of Thrones, but it's sort of, you know, moved through time and things changed, but generally it was agreed that it ended up where it should be, which is TV where it has the space and room to do the pacing that it deserves for the story and narrative. So that's a little bit on the history. And I do think it's important to note that the creators of the TV show, including Druckmann, who is involved, they really want to remain faithful to the game in its essence and not overtake the narrative of the game. So, for example, what I explained with the season one will be the first game, season two will be the second game. They don't want to reach a point where they're doing more in the show than what has been covered in the game. So I thought that was pretty interesting that they're really interested in keeping the core essence of the narrative and that world inside the game. That seems to contrast with what I've heard the actors saying, various actors saying that they tried not to watch too much of the game or play too much of the game, some of them at least, who weren't fans of it before. They didn't want to replicate the performances that were already on screen. Yeah, and I think that's quite interesting to call that actually because I like the idea of staying true to a narrative and the essence of a world, but I also definitely agree with the choice from an acting perspective not to emulate the acting from the game because we had two fine actors who played the roles in the video game that was Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson and so to kind of copy that performance I think would detract from an opportunity to do something different in the TV show but at the same time I love that we're seeing the events play out as was originally conceived by the creators of the game so it's kind of a really nice mix and I think we've really set the foundation here for something successful and I mean not to show my hand too early but I'm really enjoying what I've watched so far so also to 
just warn you, I'm sure it's no surprise, but these episodes are long. We're in the territory of episodes, you know, an hour or more, and I suspect that's what we'll be looking at for the remainder of the season. I think they're going to really use the time in each episode to flesh out full arcs over at least 60 minutes for the most part. And as I mentioned before, it's been highly anticipated by video game fans and there must be a lot of them out there because the premiere was watched by 4.7 million people on the first day. And since then it's been watched by many million more. And it's kind of been like the second biggest debut for HBO in like a decade or something like that. So it's created a pretty big splash. And I guess before we delve into, and I mean, this is a thing for me, I've been thinking about this adaptation for a while, but for you, I think, Rob, it's like, you know, we watch a lot of zombie content on the show. This is kind of a new thing, but not so new as well for you. So I, I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts more. But maybe before we delve a little more into exactly the plot and the realm of that world, let's set the tone and play a little piece of music from the score. So the score is by Gustavo Santa Olala. And um, he's done the score for the video game and also collaborated on the score for the TV show. So let's hear a piece of music called The Last of Us. This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. <laughs> was a piece of music called The Last of Us because we are indeed talking about The Last of Us today, the new TV show adaptation of the video game that is out on, it's an HBO show, so here you can watch it on Binge or Foxtel. What I will call out too, I noticed when I was researching for this, if you type in The Last of Us and search for that in Google, there's a little Easter egg that should pop up that you can, yeah, which is pretty cool, I thought. So that's a sign it's gone viral, so to speak, because Google has done an Easter egg. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Isn't there a character in The Last of Us that plays a guitar? I've seen still images of a girl under a tree. Oh, yeah, that would guitar. be Ellie, and I think those would be ah. from the second game. So Yeah, so it sort of felt like it was from the show itself in that soundtrack. Mm. I don't know where she'd get a guitar to carry around <laughs> or use it to hit the zombies on the head. She's, fe- she's feisty. She would. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the plot and the world that we're in uh, for those who are unfamiliar. It's pretty similar. If you listen to the video game review from last week, It is similar, but we'll lay it out again. So there's a fungal pandemic. I mean, I've never been so, I'm now so wary of mushrooms, but what a great visual as well. The fungi thing, like, oh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but yes, a fungal pandemic outbreak, more specifically an outbreak of the cordyceps fungi, I suppose, has wiped out a large proportion of the population. Well, That, as well as a totalitarian response to said fungi, has also wiped out more of the population. And we're now in a situation kind of decades later after the original outbreak where there are quarantine zones where people live in quote-unquote safety that are run with quite the iron fist. And then there are also the stories of those who survive outside those zones where the infected roam free. And I will say they do a beautiful job of setting up exactly what the outbreak is. And I would prefer, please, to get all my apocalypse predictions from John Hanna in future. From now now on, John Hanna explaining on a 60s TV show throwback, that's all I need in my life. 
And because John Hanna has done that so often, yeah. similar, you know, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the mummy, you know, he's just like, here's the, the man oh, who you ignore. He must just be hand-wringing that no one's listening with all these obvious warnings. But um... Isn't that the way of all apocalyptic science fiction? It all starts with everybody ignoring a scientist. Exactly, and then look where it gets us, look where it gets us. Of course, this is a world, you know, kind of ravaged by this situation, but we are focusing on a core relationship between two people, Joel, as I mentioned, a smuggler with a sad past, and Ellie, a young teenager with a secret, I guess we can say. It's revealed fairly early, but we won't delve too much more on that. Joel needs to get Ellie from point A to point B for reasons, and it's really about their quest and that journey. It's hero's journey, but it's also so much more. In the first few episodes, we see both the original outbreak, we set up some of our characters, and then we also see what the world is like approximately 20 years after the original outbreak. And we do blip around timeframes a bit, which I think is actually done quite well in helping us set up exactly motivations. Who are these people? How are people surviving? How is the world run these days? What does it look like in an actual environmental sense? And also then, of course, setting up our motivations for this cross-USA quest that we're going on with these people. So that's kind of the situation we're in. I wanted to just call out the production design on this, and I'm sure that they're looking at the quite rich graphics from the video game to start with. But to me, a lot of it looks like it came straight out of a history series or a future history series called Life After People, which, of course, I have copies of, (laughs) um, where they examined what would happen to the buildings and urban environments in particular. Oh, nice. Um, if everybody disappeared all at once and they went through sciencing the state of a decay of the states, well, as it were. I, I would think Mason's work on Chernobyl would really come into play here in terms of helping with that environmental setup too because I will say, I mean, while we're on it now, like the locations and actual the physical spaces we're in in the show, they're largely quite desolate and empty and I think mm. it's, there's a distinct lack of people for much of some of what I've seen anyway. And I think that energy, it's very much like 28 days later. It's very much like what happens when the world is abandoned. It's like, you know, it's so interesting. And I think it's, it looks spectacular for a start. It also reminds me a bit of, there's some sequences where we see some of the infected that have I don't know, perished somehow. Um, Annihilation, some of the design of the Annihilation, the biozone, very similar, that kind of bioorganic takeover, but, and the fact Mm. that this infection is from like a fungus, like it's this mushroom imagery. So I really, that struck me quite clearly that they're really doing something here with that production design. So I'm glad you called that out because I think that's a big part of what, you know, you got a lot of shots with these tiny people in this massive, just overrun, abandoned cityscapes. Yeah. And I think this is also playing into people forget that it's a, you know, there's a zombie apocalypse sort of thing going, yeah, sure. But at the heart of all of these things, there's also that um, uh, last man on earth type. Yes trope running through as well so they always run parallel to each other or shamble or whatever and the zombies in this are runners by the way yes crawlers every like and we've got a few different types and we start to see some of those different types as well but for me 
I think the design of the infected here is so much more interesting than your bog standard blood from the eyes, you know, bloody mouth zombie. I think there's some beautiful, like, horrific, like fungi fronds coming out of mouths and, you know, heads full of mushroom fungus like it's it's gorgeous and some of those designs are from the game so they look quite similar to things you will come across in the game but really just translated so well it's funny you should say that because david cronenberg master of body horror is is uh now aboard the the federation in star trek discovery oh (laughs) and they're working with Myocological networks in that mm-hmm. using a spore drive. I'm just thinking there's a whole there's a whole focus upon this at the moment. Yeah, and it it's this convergence of like you know fear of pandemic from like a biohazard like a threat and the fear of like zombie apocalypse. It's like the worst of both. <laughs> so it makes me wonder. I, I know that this has been in development hell for a while, mm. coming out into a film or a TV show. It makes me wonder if the pandemic is actually sporulating <laughs> and and this is the result of it because the walking dead and uh, z nation that they were they were well entrained before the pandemic mm. and now we've had an actual experience of that it makes me wonder if this sort of has seeded from that it feels like it, it may i think it would have definitely they would have taken an opportunity to do some linkage for sure and i i would hope maybe it helped get it out of you know get it into production a bit Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. As well as dropping lots of Accordiceps-infected clickers, The Last of Us has many obligatory, cool, commentary-laden needle drops. In the series, this one came in the form of a Hank Williams cassette tape found in Survivalist Bill's utility vehicle and played by Ellie and Joel in Episode 4. Fans of TLOU games will know that this same song also features there as well, and it was also part of the telly show's trailer. First performed in the late 1940s, but not released by MGM until 1955, Hank Williams' folksy country and western song, Alone and Forsaken, setting and underlining the tone of The Last of Us in both the television show and the game. Mixed tapes for the post-apocalypse. Rob Jan and Megan McHugh taking a road trip with the fungus bogeymen of HBO's new game-inspired zombie series, which you can catch if you'll excuse the expression here in Oz on Binge and Foxtel. Should we talk a little bit about some of the cast? So really, to be fair, we're focused on a very small amount of people, at least in the opening episodes. Like I said, we're not going to try and do too many spoiler type situation. I know it's a week to week. Some people like to wait and we don't want to ruin anything for anyone, but I think it's pretty clear from the promotional materials. We've got Pedro Pascal plays Joel. We did, I think his maybe breakthrough. He'd been acting for a while. I remember seeing him in an episode of Buffy, the freshman. He played Eddie, a, uh, another freshman, a, a Somerset mom fan. Uh, but he really kind of came into fame with his role as Oberon in Game of Thrones. And then, of course, we've since seen him in The Mandalorian, a similar role, shepherding a, cre- uh, you know, a, a being, <laughs> shepherding someone dependent on him through a, a, a great quest. A youngling. A youngling, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and then, of course, with this role, I think is a great 
casting. I think he really captures the right energy. And I think they wanted him for this because of his capacity to be surly, but also vulnerable. And you definitely, I mean, episode one gives us more than enough fodder for him to show his range of grisly, but also heartbroken. So, um, and then we've also got Bella Ramsey as Ellie. So she was also in Game of Thrones and she's been in a couple of other period pieces and so on, but she's obviously at the start of her career. Um, Ellie's character is, I think, 13 or 14, 14, I think she says at one point. And so we're really following the journey of these two. We also have Anna Torv, who plays Tess, um, it's Joel's smuggling partner. We've seen her recently in Mindhunter and before that in Fringe. So in some of my favourite psychological situations. So she is in there as well. And we talked a little bit about, because you mentioned Better Call Saul, I did just want to call out that uh, Maslin, Mazin, uh, the, the showrunner of this show, took a bit of a cue from Vince Gilligan because Gilligan has sort of a famous thing about, oh, why did you cast these comedy actors in these serious roles when he first went for, mm. you know, when he was casting Walter White? And he was sort of saying, well, comedic actors, they actually do see the tragedy in things and they have that well there. Um, it's just not necessarily as tapped into in their comedy roles. And so part of that thinking was what led Mason to cast Nick Offerman in a role in this show. He plays Bill, a survivalist, and they saw that quality in him. He's obviously quite well known for his comedy acting, Parks and Rec and so on. But that's just an example that, yeah, he took that, he took sort of the lead from Gilligan to use a more actor, more known for comedy in a really dramatic role. (laughs) Sounds like an Emmy already. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was actually in, Offerman was in a show called Devs, which is lesser known uh, Alex Garland TV show, which I highly recommend. And he plays a bit of a different role there, but it's also dramatic. So, and then we do have a host of other supporting characters that we'll meet along the way. Uh, I don't want to delve too much into those, but I will say that the actors who do the motion capture and voices for Joel and Ellie in the video game do have roles in the show. And Troy Baker, who plays Joel in the video game, has an official companion podcast that HBO produces about the show, and that also includes the show creators. Hmm. So... Yeah, and I would imagine too, of course, because these are being released week to week, there's going to be maybe characters and situations that we come across in the future that we don't know about yet, especially because they'll be quite faithful to the game. I would expect to see some of the core characters that are involved in the video game uh, coming up for us in Season 1. I think this show has legs. Mm -hmm. I can see it lasting a while. Look, is it going to achieve the longevity of, say, Z Nation, which has its own prequel um, in Black Summer, and also The Walking Dead, which is, like, everywhere. Mm. They've walked so much. And it makes me wonder if the video game, when they bring out a new version of it, you know, inevitably, it's all going to sort of go into one rolling mass, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, I think, as I mentioned before, I think they really want to keep it very close to the video game narrative. And now I should reveal, too, like I haven't played the second video game, so I actually don't know what happens beyond part one. I mean, I have some suspicions, but 
I think, and when you say, you know, the longevity of some of these other shows that really take that concept and build on it and build on it, I think they want to stay pretty one for one with whatever the narrative is from the playable video game. I do think it's interesting to think about what might happen, say, beyond a season two, because if they're so closely tying it to that original property, I wonder, I wonder if, I mean, you never know how Hollywood works. Maybe they will abandon the idea that they want to keep it faithful and, you know, run off and do whatever narrative. But I personally, I loved it. I thought I really wanted to spend time in the world, even though it is bleak as <laughs> it is so bleak, but it's quite beautiful. The atmosphere. And I think the reason what grabbed me already and wanted me, kept me watching was the acting and the chemistry between the actors on screen. And I think that's really what elevated it above just, oh, there's another horrific death. Oh, there's another beautiful location. It kind of all came together in a way that I really, I don't know, just really grabbed me and really appealed to me. And I do think what was interesting is it's grim, right? Like, I I was like, what on earth would be worth living for in this world? Like, quite frankly, I'm like, this looks awful. And then the show kind of preempted me thinking that and then showed me a reason why you would still push to survive. And I think, you know, as Joel needed to learn that lesson, I also needed to learn that lesson. <laughs> but I'm keen to hear your thoughts, Rob, especially as someone coming in I know some of what I know what's going to happen in this season, but for you, how did you feel about the first couple of eps anyway? Look, it's a strong beginning. They do differentiate themselves from Z Nation and The Walking Dead because it's already got this video game that's quite well known, mm. and they don't have to muck around with trying to tease out what the source of the apocalypse yes. is. They drill down into that in quite a good way. And, I, and to be honest, I'm a bit tired of having that, that information sort of yeah. teased out and in, info dropped along the way. Mm-hmm. So they give it to me right up front. Yep. I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. I thought the the production design is great. They're really, yeah. you know, getting to the nitty-gritty of the mm-hmm. whole thing. I like the explorative mode yeah. of them wandering around. I know that there'll be communities and stuff, etc. and I've got nothing against that. Community is one of my favourite shows. But, but you know, I want to see what they see, what yeah. the world is like, what's happened to it. I'm very curious about this sort of thing. Yeah, things. yeah. The zombie procedural is good. It's genuinely creepy. Mm. They are obviously riffing off key scenes and sequences from the game. And even if narratively that sort of doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense, let's go into that dark building. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, I know. And, and I think if you were a smuggler, you would not write down a smuggler's code on a piece of paper. There's a funny bit where uh, Joel forgets where he's put a weapons stash. Yeah. He can't remember where he's done it. There is a, a shopping sequence in one episode where one guy got it, sort of goes, oh, I'm, you know, that American trope of what is an apocalypse all about? It's about consumerism. Yeah, yep. the prepper. <laughs> Free stuff for all. Okay. But we'll, look, we'll get back into it at a later date when when we've seen a few more episodes. Everyone is talking about episode three. There's a good reason for it. You go watch, watch this it. show if you're going to watch that. Stay at least until episode three and watch that. Agree. A really fine moment in television history. Yeah, I agree. It's a beautiful episode. Do yourself a favour and give this show a shot. And like you said, watch up to episode three. It is The Last of Us. It's available on Binge and Foxtel. 
give it a shot, and if you do, make sure it's a headshot. <laughs> so we're going out with a track from Linda Ronstadt, mm-hmm. which is included in the season uh, one that we're in of Last of Us. Long, long time. There's a reason why we're playing it, and those of you out there who know, well, no. <laughs> and this is from the best of Linda Ronstadt, the capital years. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Bob. And thank you to our podcaster, Alice Savage. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.